Good morning, good morning. I, um, I love the Junoon for Jesus thing, because in Arabic, Junoon means crazy. <laughs> so just crazy for Jesus, good one. I like how you guys softened it, passion for Jesus, yeah. We all know what you mean. Good morning, my name is Jade. Um, it's my pleasure to be able to open up uh, God's words with you today. Uh, and the big question that we're looking at is, who is Jesus? Who is this man that across history has been spoken about? Who is he that even before he was born, ancient writings and people were writing about? Um, who is he that the people of his time were so amazed by, so shocked by, so insulted by, that they beat him and executed him? Who is this Jesus that has been making headlines for over 2,000 years? Uh, even Time magazine named Jesus the number one most influential figure in history. The most intelligent people have been asking this question, Christians and non-Christians. Albert Einstein, one of the most intelligent people to live in recent history, says, As a child, I, re I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Whether or not you've chosen to follow him, whether or not you think he is God in the flesh, he is undeniably the most significant in all of history. But who is he? Now, if you've been around for the past few weeks, um, we've been in our, our series called The Sun. And uh, in our series, we've been seeing Jesus do amazing, great things, crazy things, some would say. Um, and he forgave people's sins. He calmed the storm. He healed many people from diseases. He cast out demons. He fed people. He fed 5,000 people with very little food. And he even raised people from the dead. Things that were not normal for that time or really any time before then or since then. And at each of these instances, we get a glimpse into what the people are asking. So you, we see the crowds, and they're in awe, and they're wondering, who is Jesus? Last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, Herod asking, who is this that I hear such things about? Even the disciples had been asking that very same question. As Matt was reading out the passage a moment ago, I wonder what you were thinking. Was it just a passage that you've heard read a thousand times and this was just a thousand and one? Maybe it was your first time ever hearing it. Maybe you wondered why Jesus thought himself so special that he expected people to follow him. Does he have an overinflated ego? Do we need to cut down this tall poppy? So there are two main sections to our passage today. We're going to answer all these questions. And in the first section, we look at who Jesus the Christ is. Um, and it's only in understanding that first section, in understanding who Jesus the Christ is, that the second section even makes sense, following the Christ. So whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're still exploring, this passage is key to understanding why we put our trust in Jesus. So let's jump in. Luke 18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Let me tell you this. If you went out into the streets of Green Square today and asked the crowds, who is Jade Hajj? 
I suspect that every single person that you ask will have the same answer. Jade, who's this woman that you're talking about? <laughs> she sounds like a nice lady. But with Jesus, things were different. He had become famous. Jesus was traveling from region to region. He was performing miracles. He was preaching things that were controversial. And as people were hearing him and seeing what he was doing, they were going back home and telling everyone of what they heard. The crowds knew things about Jesus, but they didn't know who Jesus was. The crowds weren't sure who he was, and so they had three, these three theories um, that were roaming around Palestine at the time. The first was that he was John the Baptist. John was known as a preacher of his time. He was beheaded by um, Herod. And so they thought maybe this was John the Baptist resurrected and he was preaching to us. The second was Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament and he was known as a miracle worker. So they thought maybe he's a miracle. He's Elijah, again, resurrected. You see a pattern here. The third was um, uh, some other prophet. When they couldn't figure out which one it was, they were like, some other prophet from the Old Testament has, again, been resurrected. So there were no two ways about it. They weren't sure who he was, but it was clear to them that he was special. There was something different about him. To the crowds, Jesus was either a resurrected great teacher, a resurrected miracle worker, or a resurrected um, prophet, but he surely wasn't just some other guy. He was different. And as I was kind of thinking about this, I was, I was considering, well, if we asked today, if we were able to get enough of a, a scope of people, what would people say, who would say people say Jesus was today? Um, and there's probably a spectrum of viewpoints, but among atheists, agnostics, or maybe even people that you know, haven't really thought too much about it, um, I think that people would just say, Jesus was a good teacher, good guy, great morals, we should follow his teachings because he has really great principles. A little further down the spectrum, most religionists, spiritists, so maybe Muslims, Buddhists, uh, people that follow New Age type faiths, I think they'd be comfortable calling Jesus a uh, spiritual phenomenon, a miracle worker, a prophet maybe, maybe even the greatest prophet. And so like people today, the crowds at that time were the people that came out to see Jesus and they wanted to see all he was doing and they're like, oh, interesting. But they didn't really know him. They didn't really follow him. They saw Jesus with respect. They sensed that Jesus was a major figure, but they couldn't put their finger on what was special about this guy. The ideas they had were good ones. Great teacher, great miracle worker, great prophet. But Jesus thought these descriptions were inadequate. And so we see what he does next. He flips the question and he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. I want you to consider for a moment the phrasing of Jesus' question, the framing of Jesus' question. But what about you? It's as if he's saying, that's what the crowds that don't know me say I am. But what about you, the ones closest to me? What do you say? When I went back to sleep after I calmed the storm, when you saw me raise that little girl from the dead, when you saw me feed 5,000 people with a few sardines, what was the conversation that happened? What did you say between each other? Who do you say that I am? You can imagine the scene where Jesus says this 
And they're all just like sitting in silence, scared to say the answer. Because usually Sunday school answer is, the answer is Jesus. You can't, that's not the answer here. So they're sitting in silence. Maybe they all looked at each other. Maybe even someone nudged Peter saying like, come on, you, you go for it. And Peter comes in and possibly on behalf of all the others, he says, you're God's Messiah. Or the Christ of God. It's helpful to know that Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. Uh, Messiah has Hebrew origins, Mashiach, and Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which both come from the word anoint. So the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, they all mean the same thing. So it's at this declaration, at Peter's words, that we have to take a pause to understand what just happened. It may not feel like a huge moment to us today, in this age where we use Christ when we're frustrated or angry and we just say it. But Peter's confession was so big, so radical, that Jesus immediately commanded them to not tell anyone what they just said. So what does this declaration that Peter just made mean? We'll take a look at sections of Psalm 2 to better understand when the disciples speak about the Christ, Who are they talking about? What are they expecting? So jump with me to Psalm 2. Um, Psalm 2, we're we're taking sections to verse 2 and then 8 to 10. The kings of the earth earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Remember, his anointed means the Messiah, the Christ. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore... You kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. The message of Psalm 2 is that God has set his son, his appointed one, his anointed one, sorry, his Christ, his Messiah, on the throne to powerfully rule over and end this world's rebellion. So when Peter says that Jesus is God's Messiah, the Christ of God, he's saying, Jesus We think that you are the one that will break the enemy with a rod of iron. You are the one that will sit at the right hand of God, taking the nations as your inheritance and the whole earth as your possession. You aren't just a teacher. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a miracle worker. You are the powerful, the mighty, the unbeatable Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. So while we may just see God's Messiah and read over and continue... Peter is making a huge declaration right now. Peter's response held with it the weight of millennia of prayers and hope and tears and longing of the people of God as they struggled and waited for the Savior to come. Peter declared in those two words that the wait was over, that the one and true Christ had finally come and nothing was ever going to be the same again. That's what Peter did in that moment. The next couple of verses show us how Jesus responds to this huge declaration. Honestly, we could spend 20 sermons talking about just these next couple of verses, but we'll have to take some of it today. So we'll look at three key parts of it. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Firstly, he charges them and commands them not to tell anyone. 
And we actually have seen this happen multiple times across the Gospels. So this isn't the first time that he tells them, don't tell anyone. And he specifically always says, my time has not come yet. So let's look into that a little bit. So in John 2, 4, we see um, uh, John, yeah, when uh, this is Mary has asked Jesus to perform a miracle. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Or see this fascinating verse in John 7 where the people want to arrest Jesus. But for some weird reason, they can't because his time had not come. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? So the first thing we see in Jesus' response to Peter is to command them not to tell anyone. And we know that this is something that's a recurring pattern in Jesus when Jesus speaks sometimes because his time had not yet come. Now, what time are we talking about? And that's related to the second part that we're going to look at. Um, the second thing we notice is that right after Peter called Jesus the Christ, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And you're like, but what happened to the Christ? Jesus refers to him as the son, himself as the Son of Man, but he's saying, yes, Peter, I am the Christ, but I'm a little different to what you think I'm going to do, I'm going to be. The part of the Christ's role that you are thinking about, like we read in Psalm 2, the Savior, King, Conqueror part, that is something that is coming. But before that, there's something that needs to happen first. And that part is more related to my humanness. And that's what leads us to the third thing that we're going to look at in these couple of verses. He corrects, he corrects the disciples' lopsided view of what the Christ is. And he does it by using these four words. Suffered, rejected, killed, raised. And what do we learn? Firstly, Jesus isn't just the Christ. He's the suffering Christ. What's fascinating about this idea of this, this suffering Savior is that it's not new in the Bible. Jesus didn't just come up with it. It's actually in the, in the Old Testament we see it. And when Jesus speaks these words, it reminds us of Isaiah 53. And we'll jump there to uh, flesh out this picture of the Christ that Jesus is talking about. So speaking of this anointed one, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Imagine what Peter is thinking. He's imagining Psalm 2 Christ, right? This conquering Savior coming to do everything. And then Jesus says, yes, eventually, but first. A few years ago, someone came into church on a Sunday. After the service, um, she came up to me and she asked me, she asked to speak to me. Um, and then she shared with me that she had been abused only a few hours prior to the service. I didn't know this person. Um, and so after that had happened, she had wandered the streets trying to figure out what to do. She saw the church and she thought about everything that she knew about Jesus. She didn't know much. 
but she knew that he was loving, and so she thought, surely his people should be loving. And so she came in to find help. After having trying to support her as much as we could, um, we started meeting up weekly just outside in our cafe space to read the Bible together. Now, she was a lawyer, and so she wasn't interested in believing something that wasn't true. And honestly, she asked the most interesting and difficult questions <laughs> I've ever gotten. And really, guys, she, she just did not give me a break. Like, I'd give an answer, and she's like, yeah, but what about this part? I'm like, I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> give me a minute. Um, no, it was fantastic. In one of our last meetings, and I still remember this well, she arrived, we had a quick chat, and then she just broke down into tears. And I was asking her if she was okay. I thought she maybe had remembered something. Um, and she said this, and, and I'm paraphrasing, so this is just from my recollection. She said something like, the problem is I now know who Jesus is. I'm sure of it. It's so clear in the scriptures. And that means that my whole life has to change. Because she encountered the Jesus of the scriptures, it was obvious to her that she needed to change. Through the scriptures, Jesus asked her, who do you say I am? She had seen and experienced the reality of this world, the ugliness, the sin that consumes it. She had seen it in her abuser. She had seen it in the world around her. And finally, she eventually even found it within herself. But as, we found, but as we spent time in the Bible, that guilt and that shame turned into hope. And she could no longer deny that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one that was pierced for her transgressions, that was crushed for her iniquities, and that by her, his wounds, she could be healed. Do you see the sin and the guilt and the shame that comes with it in your life? Today, Jesus is asking you the question, who do you say I am? And I pray that today you confess, maybe for the first time, but maybe you've been around for a while. Maybe you have lived and called yourself a Christian for a very long time, but you know. So I pray that you confess that he is the Christ who died for your sin. And that brings us to our last section. As we've seen the Christ, we want to look at what it looks like to follow the Christ. Without understanding who Jesus is, following him would make no sense. Especially following him into the suffering that he's about to talk about. But now that we've seen the Jesus, the suffering Christ, let us close our time together by looking at the next few verses and think about not just what Jesus was calling the disciples to do, but what Jesus is calling us to do today. Um, just a heads up, for the next few verses, I'm using a different translation, the ESV translation, and that's because I just found the word choice uh, a bit more helpful. Um, I want you to notice the first verse is kind of like the main thing, and then the subsequent verses start with 444, as, and that kind of shows that they're contingent to the first one. We'll go into all those details in a bit, but um, it starts by saying, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So after telling them that he's going to suffer, 
He's now warning the disciples that anyone that wants to follow him will also suffer. Jesus uses these three commands to explain what anyone um, who wants to come after him must do. Deny, take up, and follow. We'll start with deny. When Jesus says deny yourself, he's calling all people to change the way that they think about their lives. Verse 24 actually speaks directly to this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus' call to deny yourself is a call to active Christ-centeredness. A call to live a life where every decision is not made to please yourself. Not to exalt yourself, but instead to deny yourself and to exalt Christ. Now, this doesn't look like one specific thing. I can't give you one law, and you have to obey this law, and that's how it works. It's a posture of our heart and our mind. The moment when that woman that I was telling you about earlier started crying was actually a beautiful moment because she realized that because of who Jesus is, she can no longer live the way that she was living. She must deny herself. She must put Christ at the center. In the case of the disciples, living this way frequently led them to their deaths, actual physical deaths. One example is in Acts, we see Stephen, he's preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders of the time, they grab him, they drag him, and they beat him to death. But as they're stoning him to death, he cries out saying, forgive them. Forgive them. That is an image of someone who has denied himself. And he's taken up his cross and he's following Christ. If denying yourself is a posture of the heart and the mind, how can we do that today? What does it look like? Honestly, if you live in Australia, probably death isn't on the table for you as a Christian, at the moment at least. But losing your job, losing your friends, losing your family, that's definitely possible. If you truly want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to lose the life that you have planned for yourself and to live a new one in Christ. You have to be begin to think differently and to ask questions like, is this decision the decision that will glorify God the most? Is purchasing this house going to enable me to continue putting Christ first in my life? Is this relationship going to help or hinder me from following Christ and his word? Are these habits the best ones to keep me daily in the scriptures and prayer? Remember, I can't give you all of the questions or a list or a rule that, you know, just follow. That's not how it works. It's a posture of your heart and mind. So as you spend time in your scriptures, in the scriptures, be asking God to reveal himself to you in every facet of your life. And to be asking questions, how can I put Christ first? The next command is to take up your cross daily. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage is frequently used out of context. Um, I'm sure you've had it said, oh, this is, you know, this is the cross I have to bear. I feel like usually speaking about children. Um, sometimes about an illness, mostly kids. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When the disciples heard Jesus speak about taking up your cross, they knew exactly what he was referring to. Honestly, there probably wasn't a Jew in Palestine at that time 
where they lived under the Roman occupation that hadn't seen someone holding a cross, walking up the road to their death. And so when Jesus says, you must take up your cross, they know what he's talking about, even though he hasn't gone to the cross yet. So the criminal carried his own cross under the Roman rule, and that was considered a public display of submission to the state. But why do we carry our cross? Why does Jesus call us to do this? In this case, we are called to carry our cross as we submit to God and join Jesus in this road of rejection and death, marking the death of, our, of this peculiar, really, individualistic, independent life that we're trying to hold and hoard and live by ourselves. We actually see this unpacked in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the point of living your best life now, your true authentic self, or whatever other individualistic altruism this society has come up with, if by doing that, you're losing the very self that you're trying to hold on to? But if you instead deny yourself, you take up your cross with Christ, you will gain eternal life with Christ. And finally, Jesus commands everyone to follow him. And we'll close uh, our time with this last thought. Jesus doesn't call the disciples, notice this, Jesus doesn't call, Jesus doesn't call the disciples to follow his path or to follow his principles. He calls them to follow him. Jesus is the path. Jesus isn't just a teacher or a guru or someone with a special set of principles or pillars that we should emulate. Jesus, the suffering Christ, is calling all of us, is calling you to follow him continually every day. To follow him into being rejected by the world. To follow him into denying yourself to follow him by taking up your cross. Look at verse 26. The worst thing that could happen to anyone. And, and we say the worst thing frequently. Oh, this is the worst thing because my internet's slow today or something. This is actually the worst thing that can happen to anyone. Is that when we die, and we're all going to die... The worst thing that can happen is as we stand before God, Jesus says, you chose to live your life your way. You were too ashamed of me and my words. So today, I am ashamed of you. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you print these words on our hearts. We ask that by your spirit, you transform our hearts and our minds to live in accordance with your will. Father, we don't know sometimes how to do things in a way that is good and pleasing to you. We want to follow Jesus. 
Help us daily. Help us in every moment to know how to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. Help us through your word to better understand how all of this, what all of this looks like in our lives, in each and every one of our lives. Help us not be stuck in the love of money and the love of career or the love of anything, but let us center our life on the love of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.